Hi, Barbara Ann. Hi, Vera Elizabeth. How do you do? Really amazing, Wiffle. What? I said, <laughs> really amazing, Wiffle. I heard, I heard that. <laughs> so now do you believe I have more mouth salad than you do? <laughs> My word salad always trumps your word salad. We decided that we have word salad. Dysmorphia. Dysmorphia, because we both think that... <laughs> We have more word salad than the other one. But anyway, speaking of salads, I wanted to introduce a new segment. How about we do Twin Sights? What do you think? I love Twin Sights. Where we, after we've reflected upon the last podcast, we... um, You maybe more than me because you edit it and you get to listen to it. I spent 45,000 hours that I don't have on it. (laughs) Yes. Well, I told a story on episode two about the time that I stopped being a virgin. Mm, Put an end to that. Yep. I was a little unfair to the guy. I I described him as... A prince? No, not at all. Oh. But I did say that he he wanted nothing to do with me after, and that is just simply not true. Oh. He had a girlfriend uh, back home. Oh, okay. So you know, I think he was more trying to be just an upstanding um, philanderer, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, I can't take on this other person. I have a responsibility who, to someone. Who am I? Anna Ace Nin with a husband on both coasts exactly he was very much like Anais Nin you know in that in almost all respects including that (laughs) not that one (laughs) okay so all right well now I understand yeah could you just tell me like how how did he let you know this did was it just like right after you guys had sex did he just sort of like brush the hair out of your eyes and go this has been really nice but you know you're I just want to let you know you're my side piece tonight (laughs) just tonight well, what, what you're doing right now is you're bringing t- to mind the kind of story that you never, ever want to hear from me <laughs> about something else he said. Oh, no. What did he say? Mm, we're going to have to put a pin in that. Okay. If enough people, um, enough of our fans <laughs> demand to hear the story, that will make Vera's stomach turn. <laughs> My eyes, ears, and nose bleed. Yeah. You just you just write us a comment in the in the box below. Okay. Is that how it works? Yeah, okay. sure. I do want to wrap up this story with him. There was another significant moment between us that I just wanted to tell the story of. Is that okay? Did you not tell us the whole story? Is there more? There's a little bit more. And I, I just want to tell a relatable story, you know, oh, about sure. someone who just lost their virginity to someone who didn't want a relationship with them. And, you know, and the reaction they had, you know, and I'm... So so just something to let you know that, you know, let, let our listeners know that we're, hey, we're just like you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's hear it. About a month later, you know, I I think I'd kind of accepted that this wasn't going to be what I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was feeling a little bit better. Um, And I remember coming back from the cafeteria one day um, and I was eating and I don't know, like a popsicle or something. Mm -hmm. And I walked into our dorms and there's a lounge like by the front door. And he and a bunch of other people from our floor were all sitting there laughing and like really having a good time mm. and he called out to me and I can't think of the movie right off the top of my head but I know there's a million of them where everybody's laughing but you and then there's like all this distortion and then you know there's a camera that goes it's like a dolly and zoom out um there was yeah that happened and I really appreciated that because I just started film school and I was like oh yeah oh this does happen in real life uh yeah that's a what's that movie with a punching guy punching guy scorsese did a movie about guy who punched oh the guy who punches raging bull i was gonna say uh new york puncherello yeah right no, that? that's our name that's your name when you do the voice i'm new york puncherello it's a real raging bull moment mm-hmm. and everyone's laughing and then he calls out to me and this is actually kind of the first time he's acknowledged me in a month you know so 
I don't know what to think. I turn around with a big smile on my face. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. He goes, hey, go get me a Coke. Mm. Now, I'm sure everyone knows how this story ends. I mean, what would your reaction be? Uh, Just like white hot rage, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I I remained incredibly (laughs) calm. Yeah. All I did Uh was pull my arm back. Yes. And then swing it as hard as I could. Yes. Letting the popsicle fly from between my fingers, uh-huh. uh, much like a ninja star, mm-hmm. to the point where it hit him in the eye <laughs> from, ac- <laughs> from across the room. Directly in the eye? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not making this shit up. It, <laughs> there was no way this, the hand of God um, Direct, I, directed I, you. I do admit I had some <laughs> help from the big guy. <laughs> it hit him in the eye, and wow. then... I walked off. Hmm. As you I should. I just walked off. Sure. Like a... Like a queen. Uh, hey, you know that wang you gave me earlier? <laughs> right back at ya. I bet this is less uncomfortable <laughs> for you. <laughs> so I'm doing you... Actually, you know what? You want to know why I was the same? <laughs> why were you the same? Because, you know, because I let him off easy by just embarrassing him in front of everyone on our floor. <laughs> anyway, you know what? Long story short, Mm -hmm. a couple of the guys had moved the Coke machine the night before, so that was the joke. Mm -hmm. I was just supposed to look for where it was and see it wasn't there. But do you have any um, twin sides for us? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the first episode, I told a story about yeah, yeah. What is it (laughs) about a guy who I went on a date with, Mm -hmm. and he drank too much. And in the story, I criticized him and said I didn't like him, but in real life. Um, when I went back and read my diary, he was okay. I think I was just critical of his drinking because there's alcoholism in our family, and it makes me really <laughs> uncomfortable when when I see adults um, not drink safely. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Wait, let me ask you another question. Yeah. You're not afraid that guy's gonna listen to this podcast? No, <laughs> no way. <laughs> and have his feelings hurt. <laughs> What you think I'm, I'm like sensitive about? <laughs> no, come on. Okay. Phoebe, our guest today. Who is it? Can we say hello to her? Yes. Okay. Ready? Hi, Dr. Amy. Hi. Thanks for having me. We have a real live doctor, marriage family therapist, Dr. Mm-hmm. Amy Harwick, with us today, and she picked out our book. It's our first guest. I know. That's exciting. Yeah. I'm excited to be your first. That's really, please don't throw a popsicle at my eye. (laughs) Zing! (laughs) Yeah, I was excited to pick this book out for you guys um, because I think this book's like one of the most monumental books that all people should read that are ever in a relationship, which is most, if not all people. Um, You guys already did. It's called A Breakup Because It's Broken, which I think is an amazing book, too. So that's really exciting. I agree with you, Amy. Everybody should read this book. Yeah, it's life changing. I feel like as a therapist, I went through all these years of education and I work with clients all the time. So I have the education and experience. And I feel like it's my social responsibility to give other people the cliff notes. Oh, yeah. So whether they read the books or not, I like to post when I've read something that I think is really good or talk about it a lot. Um, Because the reality is people don't read enough. 
And that's why I love your podcast, because I think that it's kind of like a podcast book club. It is. For all people. Yes, it is. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Wait. Did we say what the name of the book is? Dr. Amy, can you tell us what the name of the book so is? So the book that we're going to talk about today is Attached um, by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. And Attached is a book about relationship attachment styles. Um, recently, I was talking about this to somebody in my personal life, and they said, well, I'm really attached to some dogs that I used to have from a last relationship, and I don't know why I'm still... And I'm like, no, and that's not really what I'm talking about here. Um, attachment styles are really related to something that can even start and form when you're an infant, and you see this in children, but it also affects how we have relationships with others, mostly our intimate partners, but even our platonic friendships. This I, can kind of come out in. There's three different styles? Systems? Major, systems? major ones, right? Because okay. there's still anxious avoidant, too, that's a very small percentage of the population, but most people are either secure avoidant or anxious can in their you, attachment style. Can you tell us a little bit about those three Sure. Styles? So securely attached people are people that, you know, if somebody does something you know, horrific to them, they can set a boundary, typically separate from that person and not be triggered or activated in some type of way. People that are open to love and relationship and can make themselves emotionally available and stay attuned or connected in relationships. And these are all very general things that I'm saying here. I mean, there's mm -hmm. science, books, journal articles about attachment studies. So this is like the very brief cliff notes. Mm -hmm. Anxiously attached people are very triggered or I like to say activated um, by the idea that people are going to leave them. So this is real or imagined abandonment. So if somebody is dating somebody else and they're like rejecting them and ghosting them, obviously that doesn't feel good for anybody. But somebody who's anxiously attached might feel more triggering, more activation, more distress, and then might act on that and be reactive. And sometimes that's not even based on something that you might call reality, right? Right. So it's real or imagined. Okay. So if the real things are happening, the person might be in more distress than a securely attached person. Mm -hmm. But sometimes these things aren't happening. And all of these attachment styles, by the way, have positives as well. So if you're an anxiously attached person or your partner is anxiously attached, people like that typically tend to be more aware of their environment. They can pick up on things faster. Mm -hmm. This is the person that's thinking someone's cheating on them. Well, they probably are, but they're just going to pick up on it sooner, quicker without the evidence, but they feel it. Okay. And then they, but then they look through the person's phone and do things that are maybe not healthy. So um, the anxiously attached person's kind of like always on alert. Okay. And then there's avoidant attachment. And these people typically do things that instead of an anxious person being reactive or feeling triggered by the idea of abandonment, this person will kind of unconsciously do things to avoid connection. So if you're in a relationship with this person, not only might they do things that could be sabotaging to relationships or push people away, but they might actually not share the positives too mm. that will bring you closer together. So this person might appear selfish or narcissistic, but it might actually be their attachment system and not narcissistic personality disorder. I see. So, so, and these are, you know, that you have extremes of these styles, but then people also have flavors of these styles too. And that's more common of what you see, but there are people on a whole spectrum there and people can improve over time, but no one's going to be the worst avoidant attachment person and then become anxiously attached. That's very unlikely. So if we pay attention to anything in our lives, we can see some improvement. But if you're dating, it's really important, or if you're in a relationship, to be aware of your own relationship style or your own attachment style and your partners or the people that you might be looking at as potential partners. Can your sis attachment system change over time? It can be flexible. I mean, we're all like, you know, there's a lot of studies on neuroplasticity right now, like how much our brain can physically and emotionally change over time and we can change we're not static all the time um, however it's not going to be extreme change so you know I've 
definitely dated quite a few people that have very avoidant attachment styles. And I think that the hopeful therapist in me is like, if I'm supportive, maybe I can teach them and give them books to read. And through this relationship, they can learn. Well, yeah, through relationships, we can heal and learn, but it has to be intentional. So a very avoidant person won't be minimally avoidant very quickly. People can change and shift over time a little bit, but generally it's not going to be overnight and it's not going to be monumental change. Um, Even from like the very beginning, they're talking about different, uh, you know, samples of relationships and stuff like that. I just, I I made a note. It just says somebody has been reading my diary from 1999. Um, (laughs) I was textbook anxious and my boyfriend at the time was textbook uh, avoidant. But one of the most interesting things I read, I thought was, uh, here we go. Like on one page, page 159, it says the emotional counterbalancing act. Um, And this is on a page about the telltale signs of anxious avoidant trap. It says, if you're avoidant, you often inflate your self-esteem and sense independence in comparison to someone else. I wonder if somebody who's really avoidant would even want to change being avoidant. Because if you have a... No. (laughs) Usually, usually. You know, I want to say like, oh, let's all be hopeful. Um, But usually not, especially the older somebody is, the the less likely that is to happen. Um, Here, you know, this... uh, Turn your textbooks to page 159. The Emotional Counterbalancing Act. Um, So inflated self-esteem and wanting independence. So you see this a lot. um, If you didn't read this book and you were not familiar with this theory, you might hear this a lot from people. And oftentimes it's very gendered, but not all the time. So it's not always men are avoiding women are anxious. But a lot of times you do see that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you hear these people saying, I just want freedom. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. Yeah. I just want to make my own decisions. But even in relationship dynamics where nobody is in telling them how to make decisions or restricting their freedom, but the person just has these vague comments and philosophical ideas about freedom and choices, but really it's more about their attachment than it is about the relationship. So here it's saying this sense of independence. I need my independence. I need to go on a trip by myself, or I need to, you know, do this thing on my own. And sometimes, yes, that is important and healthy for people. But is that because you want your autonomy within the relationship and you want boundaries? Or is this a way to create a wall and some distancing from your partner? Yeah, it's almost like you need that partner there to make you feel that you need more independence. Like you're like, well, it triggers people. So are these people doing this when they're single? Or is this when they start getting in a relationship that gives them the signs and symptoms that oh, this is a serious committed relationship, and then they start acting like this. I would say it's that, right? Right, and that's when you see the avoidant attachment being triggered by that type of person. And if somebody is aware of this, like, hmm, maybe what I'm doing right now is actually an avoidant strategy to create distance so I don't have to get close. I mean, I think most people would go, I'm not, it's not that they're avoidant. They have high self-esteem about that, you know, Mm -hmm. and they kind of, they see their partner is needy, and that makes them feel even better about themselves. There's also that, like, people calling it, commitment issues which is kind of this detached way of like it's a lot less vulnerable than understanding or even caring that you might have an attachment issue but like hey I got commitment issues is used as an excuse a lot right? and it's like Like, a culturally common term like commit he had a problem with commitment well wait what does that mean does that mean he's like dishonest and cheating because that's not commitment issues that's dishonesty yeah is it avoidant attachment where they're creating distances so they don't have to be attuned to a partner well I mean that just sounds so sad but that's the attachment issue but ultimately what does that person want are they willing to sit with the discomfort and work through this with a partnership because if they don't this will never change and people who are very avoidant for them to be in a successful relationship is either being with a secure person that doesn't care well who what secure person would want a partner that can't show up for them yeah so it's two 
avoidant people that just kind of turn away from each other, which is, I mean, doesn't sound like a nice relationship for me to be in, but for an avoidant person, they're not going to be triggered by an anxious or secure person wanting or demanding attunement. This book does say that avoidants rarely get together, though, because they're just too avoidant. They, right. they need somebody. To, yeah, there's that. Yeah. And then I think they also probably need somebody who's who needs something from them so they can back up. So that they know? can be avoidant. They're reacting yeah. to something. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the, the image on the front of this book is two magnets that are very cutely um, shaped into a heart. But mm-hmm. if you did put two magnets together with the raw... pull away. Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's a perfect metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I asked about the changing over time because I think my reading through this book, I, I can kind of identify my own attachment system mm-hmm. having changed over the years. Yeah. And then thinking about various relationships. Like, I think I, I started out pretty secure. I think the first couple of relationships, like I mentioned, that was not a relationship, but, you know, having sex for the first time with somebody mm-hmm. who rejects you, mm-hmm. I think triggered an anxious attachment attachment system mm, for me. Yeah. And I think that extended for a little while. And then I've had such varied relationships, including a couple marriages. At this point, I would say just listening to myself talk on these podcasts that I'm more in the avoidant. And I say that because I'm reading through this book and then it, it struck me as like, what? so the goal is to have a relationship where you stay together for a long time like that doesn't necessarily ring true with me you don't see it as you just cutting off people who are incompatible because the authors talk about that a lot about but that's also there's a boundary thing there too you're at a different life stage like being a parent having a home like when you're more established and you've been through bad relationships you start realizing what works and what doesn't work for you too like are you running when if there's a securely attached partner showing up at your door that shows you they have all the material in them to be like a available kind together solid person are you then running from them it says it in this book and we're also in a city where i think this is more prevalent that as you age a lot of the people who are secure are with a partner (laughs) because they're secure and they get snatched up so the people that get thrown back in the dating pool are typically avoidance because the anxious people will then quickly seek out another relationship Mm -hmm. so they're typically not in the dating pool because they're seeking the secure people are taken most of the time So the dating pool is disproportionately avoidant. So you might not be seeking out avoidance, but that's just what's on dating apps. I I read that. I read that they cycle back into the general dating population because they... disproportionately high. Yeah. The other thing that this brought up for me is a a couple relationships, you know, in the last, say, decade or something, I've looked at someone and thought like, oh, you're someone who, if I need to get out of this, I can get out of this. You Mm -hmm. know, like I I recognized in myself that I'm just not willing to... It's exhausting being in a relationship that... Well, that sounds... Yeah, like there's some fear there that, you know, if I I need to get out, I can get out. And so I'm choosing a partner that seems easy for me to walk away from. So that makes me think I'm avoidant. That sounds somewhat avoidant, but it doesn't sound like you're becoming attached or becoming in a relationship dynamic and then doing things unconsciously to sabotage it. I hear you picking partners that maybe you know, like, this person's not a great fit for me, so this will be easier for me not to, like, jump fully into. Yeah. I think yeah, I so it leans like... more towards that, but I'm not hearing it being Well, that's positive. Listen to Dr. Amy. Yeah. She's <laughs> a doctor. But also, we all have our different goals. I don't know, you know, I haven't read this book in full for about a year or so, um, but there is a bias in a lot of relationship books that emphasize that you just should be in a relationship or mm-hmm. marriages should stay together. And I think that can be really dangerous too because in our lives, we're going to have so many different types of relationships and it's not failure if relationships end. If things end in a way that works better for you and is healthier for you, I think that's very positive. So I think the goal is all, always to find healthy relationship or relationships in your life and recognize when they're not 
the best thing for you and be able to close the door and walk away. So the goal isn't like find your forever partner because that's really unrealistic and it will set people up for a lot of problems. Can I ask a question that's a little off topic? It's, yeah. a, it's an opinion question for both of you. Did you guys see the proposal recently? It was the viral proposal where the guy animated himself and his fiance or would-be fiance into a Disney cartoon. I would feel very violated if somebody <laughs> turned me into a Disney cartoon. <laughs> No. no, I didn't see this. Okay, I'm going to describe it really quickly. Okay. Um, there's a little rented theater, and it's the a man and a woman, and um, they're watching her favorite animated feature film, which is Sleeping Beauty, and then they get to a scene, and all of a sudden the characters turn into the man and the woman, and the man proposes, starts to propose to the woman in the animated cartoon, and then the cartoon throws him a ring box, and he catches it magically, and then he proposes to his fiance in the theater. Turns out the whole theater is their friends or whatever, and it's this incredibly elaborate proposal. They've been together since high school, so I'm going to do the math on that and say they probably met when they're 18 and now they're in their late 20s, and they're going to get married, and nothing has made me more uncomfortable than watching this or considering what their lives are going to be because they've been together since Pressure. they were. Yes. <laughs> Lack mean, of experience <laughs> with other partners. And oh, by the way, you went viral. So everyone's watching you. Yeah. And so it's like this extravagant thing. But it's everybody's. Yeah. There are all the comments across the border. Oh, my God, how romantic. And she said yes and whatever. But well, good. Yeah. No, thank God. Whew. But I, I look at that and go, oh, my God, you guys are high school sweethearts. And you're going to get married? Like, that is... you. That well, is, I mean, that could work out. Just like you could have a one-night stand that could be your forever partner. Or maybe you never have forever partners and you feel totally fulfilled with a series of very wonderful, kind relationships. But there's no one path. Sure. And as much as I hope this works out for these people, it may or may not. We don't know. Yeah, you no, know, but, but I that's, wish them the best. I don't, I don't view that as romantic. I think we have to be so careful on what we view as romantic yeah. um, and romanticize what we romanticize. And by reposting things like that, it's really romanticizing men making extreme gestures to women and putting them on the spot without their permission. The idea of proposing as a surprise to me sounds like an, being ambushed. Like, <laughs> please, in the future, if anyone wants to propose to me, don't do that ever. Can we have a conversation, please? Um, I just, I think culturally that's not a romantic notion. I don't, Because it yeah. takes the power away from a woman and puts, a, uh, puts all this pressure on them in this like romanticized male-female proposal dynamic. But I see just so many comments, so many people respond to that in a very, very positive way and they do see it as romantic thing I do not is there an age range to these people that are responding I don't know oh, I mean no I mean it... can we talk about like how popular the bachelor is I mean this is a cultural phenomenon and it's not changing we want to say as a culture we're so aware now and we're going into moving into all these areas of different relationship dynamics and openness but still reality shows that show people lining up for one available partner and like hoping that they'll be picked is it's still People identify with that for a reason. Do you watch The Bachelor? Uh, no. I've never watched no, it. No, I've never watched it. Um, and I see so many people posting that they're watching it because they're so excited that they're watching it and they share that with people. I feel very excluded from this culture. I feel like an alien because I don't identify with this. Yeah, me too. I find it very bizarre, but also maybe I'm weird. I'm a weird one I don't. Here. I mean, do people do people watch that show for the spectacle or because they think people are finding love? I don't... Both. I yes. think it's, it's the reality. It's a spectacle. It's a, the spectacle of it, but it's also the idea that somebody's going to be picked and show this romantic side. Like, I can't imagine wanting a guy that's 
trying to hook up with all these chicks like it's like rock of love but like more polished <laughs> like no brett michaels i don't want to have sex oh. with you after you hooked up with all these girls i see this as a polished rock of love and i'm so confused by that would make it a diamond yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah but it's, like, a, it's a, the cultural idea of what's romanticized can be yeah. very problematic and give us these false perceptions of relationships and i think that this book is really looking at let's strip these cultural ideas away and really take a look at something that's more scientifically based because if somebody is avoidant you can't love them into being securely attached that will never happen yeah i love that this is it's written by uh, i guess a doctor and a what is an ma uh, a master's i don't know what they have a master's of psychology or something mm -hmm. like that it's it's written from a very mm -hmm. scientific mm -hmm. standpoint i kind of like it as in, compared to our last book in that there's no it's so straightforward and there's no um pop culture references there's not there's no the breakup um, because it's a broken feels like a friend and yeah. Yeah. that book was sent to me i went through a breakup oh gosh maybe seven years ago um with a musician who had a butthole tattoo <laughs> and so one would imagine the breakup would have been pretty obviously like clear and I wasn't sad but I was still very sad over this breakup he cheated on me with a very young girl who sent me a lot of pictures of him cheating and I just sent him the photo of him cheating I said this is where we're at right and now did you identify him by his butthole tattoo no he there were I'm not going to name him so I can say this he was sending flaccid penis photos to a 19 year old girl <laughs> she asked for them but she asked for them i think because she knew she, she he had a girlfriend oh and no. she was getting dirt on him and then trying to say hey you better leave your girlfriend for me and he said oh, no and wow. she contacted me and i said girl to girl if you have evidence let me know so i can please end this relationship like yeah. have some empathy for me and help me get out of this if i have evidence i can close this door and she sent it to me and I, to this day i'm thankful for that lovely young lady um but the photos of his flaccid penis he had a tattoo on his hand and oh, no. he was not very smart and i told him i broke up with him because of his lack of intelligence with <laughs> so but i was still very sad and a friend of his a female friend of his felt so bad for me that this it was very much like a spectacle that this happened and very shocking mm -hmm. that she sent me this care package of this book Aww. it's not a breakup because it's broken and some bath bombs and a really thoughtful card and i thought what a great it was just an interesting thing to see women support me in that, the girl that he was cheating on me with reaching out, which I felt like, thank you for the information. Uh, this other woman sending me this book and these bath bombs. And I just, and then reading that book, it felt like I was guided through this like next month that was difficult. And I came out the other side just feeling more confident about the breakup with the decisions that I made. And I recommend it to people. And it's not an academic book. No. But I it's feel totally practical. I feel like it's yeah. like you have a friend that's a therapist that's just kind of like your buddy that's like telling you these these things. So it's not as scientific, but I do think it's really, really helpful. And it's it's light. Do you have any experience with um, why men love bitches? Um, or do you know? As a, as a fact or as a, as a book? <laughs> I have actually not read that. I have not read this book. I mean, I can go on about that idea, but I actually don't know about the book itself. Right. My two Could read you? list, my Amazon list of books I want to order is literally hundreds. Well, go ahead, and put this, go ahead and put this at the very last. Yeah. Because it is well, not attached, attached is one of the ones that I recommend all people to read that are dating or in relationships. I think it's one of the best books. In fact, 
Um, I recommended it to a girl, a girlfriend of mine. I think she's a paralegal. She's maybe in her early 30s. And she's constantly with these guys that just treat her so bad. And she's pretty and she's cool. And, you know, just she's like a, a Star Wars cosplay girl, but she's super smart, has a degree, and she saves her money responsibly. I'm like, you're, you know you're a catch across the board, this girl. And um, But I saw her really displaying some anxious attachment behaviors and choosing these very avoidant men that just treat her terribly. And I said, please read this. This was, I think, five days ago. She's already gotten through the whole thing on Audible, and she's like, my whole perspective has changed. Yeah. I'm, and I feel like I just woke up. I also mm-hmm. like that the book, has no, it doesn't really focus on what your childhood was or anything uh, other than... Well, it talks about yeah. infant attachment styles, and there has been some new research saying that like that infant attachment style may or may not be related to adult relationship attachment right. style. I think it very much is related. I see a very disproportionate amount of people with anxious attachment that are adopted or were in foster care. Oh. And that sounds almost obvious, but... Um, Um, Even regardless of their experience. So people I know that were adopted as infants that grew up in a very great family, a very good upbringing, very much show very similar attachment, anxious attachment behaviors as people I've worked with that were in the foster care system and had a lot of abuse and neglect. Hmm. So it's it's really interesting the correlation between early, early infant experiences and neglect and abuse and the need to attach that that didn't create. But that being said, that doesn't mean that has to have happened to you for you to be anxiously attached or avoided and attached. And so, but it does go into, you know, whether your partner is cheating and you're realizing they're distancing and that's from their avoidant attachment or they're just avoidant and kind of coming off like a jerk. If you are anxious, that will never work for you. Yeah. Like it, you were, if you are in a marriage or a long-term committed relationship as an anxious person with an avoidant person, you are signing up for a lifetime of discomfort. And if you are choosing that, there's ways you can cope with it. But that's what you were signing up for, and you need to be aware of what that dynamic is. Reading this whole book, I felt so calm because they talk about it so straightforwardly, and they did, they talk about compatible. These, it's just a fact. Yeah, yeah, these are two different types. They are mm-hmm. not compatible. Mm-hmm. If you are going on a, you know, if you're early on in a relationship with somebody and you're they're exhibiting these, you need to understand that you're not going to mm-hmm. get what you need. You know, and I one of my favorite parts is that he, um, they talk about like if there's a conflict, an anxious person as I was in my last relationship before I got married, I constantly felt anxious and I would avoid stating my needs because Mm -hmm. I was afraid that Mm -hmm. the reaction would be bad. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I think that's why the relationship lasted like five years because Mm -hmm. I never just went ahead and said, you know, I really do need to know if we're Mm going to get married or whatever. They, in this book, they talk about like, Hey, it's early on, ask this question. It doesn't matter what the answer is. You can tell by their style of answering whether or not mm-hmm. you guys have a future. It's I think that's true. so hard to do, though, when you're younger because you you feel like you're putting your worth out there. So if you ask him, are you ready to get married? And he says, no. As a young person, you're probably going to go, it's something about me. And that's so hard But this to book hear. says v- right. very straightforwardly, this has nothing to do with your worth. You are gauging right. whether or not this person mm. is compatible with you. It takes it you. completely off of your plate. It, yes, yeah. it does. Yeah. And even if it still hurts later, you can go back and you have this knowledge, reflect and say, well, I did see this thing early on, and that, hmm, that does make some sense. This isn't something out of the blue. This is something that I was aware of, and I chose to kind of, like, still move forward and see what was going to happen. But you know what? This is right. This is just not going to work. And you can't make something work. You you really, with relationships, cannot keep shoving a round peg (laughs) into a square hole. So... 
I think this is a really great way to kind of like um, use a more logical scientific base for how you're looking at relationships because we do look at them through this romanticized emotional lens. Look at, you know, again, like The Bachelor, look at our media that we're exposed to or these viral videos. We look at things through this romanticized idea and when we romanticize things, all the logic and science goes out the window. Yeah. And I mean, I look at things very logically to the point where it's kind of problematic. Like, did you know the fact show? Please read this (laughs) textbook. How does that affect how does it affect your relationships i usually give a lot of homework and <laughs> so you're the people that you're dating <laughs> yes so, um but but it is it and then i use my therapy i'm not becoming people's therapists but i was recently in a, a short-term dating dynamic and um i had there was like some distancing stuff that came up some like just not talking to me for a day or two for no reason i said you know this feels like d- avoiding attachment distancing and um, I said, you know what, let's just come together and turn in and talk about what's feeling so uncomfortable because we didn't really have an argument. You're just acting really distant. And I'm a bit confused at this behavior. And he said, um, oh, this you just sound really desperate now. And I'm like, mm, that's no. the reaction. That's the reaction you want, though, because now that's you know you, you can. Want. And I know that. So when I heard this. I just, you know, red flag was like waving and I'm like, and I was just so sad because it wasn't like maybe 20 years ago where I would say, oh, no, 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 I can just fix this and I just need to take all these actions and then if I take these actions, then it will be all better. But the sadness was more about the revelation that Mm. this is what's, he's really avoidant and he's not insightful. And so if I choose to continue in this dynamic, I'm really just setting myself up for a lot of disappointment. So I know this isn't going to work out and I need to take a step back and figure out what my next step is then to take care of myself but when I'm in these situations with any type of dating dynamic why would I not use the words I know and then of course the person might say like well you're talking in your therapist voice I'm like well I'm talking about attachment styles I mean I can change it and be like you're commitment phobic but then I'm using pop culture terms that are actually stigmatizing and not fair Um, you mentioned protest behaviors and I also want to go into a few other things that are really common in um, avoidance um, are there's a concept called the phantom X that I refer oh, to a lot yeah. and I really like this concept um, I don't know what page it's on if you find it let's call it out so readers can get their copies and look um, but the phantom X is this idea that is very common with avoidant attachment style people where they'll think about let's say where the name came from an X in their past that's just kind of better than you that page 124 if they were still with that x that x would be doing this better or maybe they're more attractive or more interesting so they reflect on this x that they may or may not still have contact with but what that does is it detracts from the relationship that they're in so it pulls away from the closeness of their current relationship with this idea because it's always an idea we don't really know that person anymore even if they're our friend right you know that that dynamic is over it's in the past but this phantom x can also be a fantasy person so oftentimes people that are very avoidant attachment will get crushes on celebrities people online girls that they see on instagram or guys that they see on instagram these fantasy people that ultimately are just fantasies or projections um it's more about what they're projecting into that person mm -hmm. too right 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 but it's this this idea that takes them out of their intimate dynamic and into this fantasy world or the fantasy dynamic of what other relationships could be or would be but i mean a fantasy cannot call you a fantasy cannot tell you what they need exactly but the the person it's a distancing strategy because if they didn't have this fantasy idea of this person place relationship dynamic or, or whatever 
they might actually be in tune or attuned to their partner. Right. But this idea pulls them out of that. And you yeah. see that a lot with people that might go to strip clubs a lot or engage with certain types of like sex workers like cam girls because the fantasy to them mm. is so important. Um, and that fantasy detracts them, distracts them away from the real intimate connection that's going on. And not like saying those things are bad. I think that I'm very pro-sex worker. And we have to be very aware that things like porn and cam girls and strip clubs are fantasy entertainment yeah. experience. I know there's nothing that makes me sadder than hearing a guy say that he doesn't want to give money at a strip club because he doesn't feel that that girl really likes them. Yeah, I mean, they don't. They don't. <laughs> they like, don't. They don't like you. It's their Sorry. job. It's their job. They have rent yeah. to pay. They there's multiple people I've been in relationships with that have actually said, and all of these people are also very avoidant. Uh, you know, strippers are just girls that love to party and have sex. And like, I'm just there to hang out with them and give them oh, some no. money. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, no, wow. this is their job. They're and very good actresses is what they are. They're very good yeah. at the fantasy and like yeah. good for them. But like they're not girls that are cashing in on their love for partying and showing you their vagina. <laughs> they just can do this and they're good at it and they're good at the fantasy. It's a fantasy projection. Even a lot of strippers that I've worked with are dancers or sex workers in my practice. A lot of them talk about how they're not even performing a lot, but that it's the the, it's the, talk the talking and the, the, and the, the idea, and... the growth, the attention, the validation. Yeah. So, But that's all the fantasy. They're creating this validation fantasy, yeah. which is fine if a guy like says, hey, or a girl, whatever. You know, I want to feel this fantasy validation on a Friday night instead of saying, hey, I want to go get a lap dance. Like, I want this fantasy validation. I'm going to pay my $50 for it. And and then I'm going to say, hmm, that was a nice fantasy. And now I'm going to go home back to my real life. But that's not what people say. We have a friend who works mostly in clubs. Mm -hmm. And she says the majority of her job is just talking and listening oh, yeah. and listening. Yeah. But listening it's the fantasy. Lot. It's the fantasy that yeah. someone cares. So it might not be the sexual fantasy. But I see that idea a lot with this Phantom X concept with typically male identified people that are also avoidant is that they tend to really gravitate towards like the strip club environment mm. because it's fantasy. Yeah. So avoidant people, male and females, do gravitate more towards like fantasy concepts, ideas and people yeah. because it detracts them away from the actual intimate connection. I hadn't thought about it in the terms of crushes before. That's really interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I think and I think uh, social media really helps to make that grow right. because you're watching uh, people's lives and you think you're watching what their lives really are. You're projecting on their projections. You're projecting on them. <laughs> and then they're also shaping what their personalities mm -hmm. are in a way to mm -hmm. draw you in as well. I mean, everybody does that. You don't want to mm -hmm. present a bad side to yourself. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can even interact with them a little bit. You leave a yeah. comment and they put a heart next to it. And all of a sudden you, you know, this person's your friend. Or There's so the think. fantasy validation, the yes. heart. That's, yeah. And, you know, that's that's something that happens so much. And, you know, I've, I've been in dating dynamics where I've seen that happen. You know, the person leaving hearts for others or other people leaving hearts for them and them thinking this person's so great and wonderful. And But that all that does is cause people to turn away mm -hmm. so I mean it's really very simple when you're in a relationship and things feel sticky or uncomfortable one way to succeed in any relationship regardless of your attachment style is to turn in mm -hmm. the way to sabotage your relationship is to turn away everything that you've been saying like I can I can glean a little bit from each thing like I have crushes I've had crushes all my life you know and well people have crushes when they're in relationships too but is that distracting you from actually being close to the person that you're in a relationship with the crushes start when that person I'm in, in the relationship uh, with starts to exhibit behavior that starts to push me away mm -hmm. so I that's my reaction instead of getting out of it I mm -hmm. start projecting 
better qualities onto mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I'm hearing some avoidant stuff, but also I'm not hearing you say I'm currently in a relationship where I'm exhibiting these behaviors and being harmful to myself or others too. It means- and I don't want, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work right now mm-hmm. because I want the next relationship to be something where I'm, I'm prepared mm-hmm. for it for one. Mm-hmm. You, you go through enough relationships, you get really tired of going back into mm-hmm. the same kind of dynamic and I tend to attract avoidant people. I mean, I think it's partially where we live. We're in Los Angeles, and I think that's the breed here. And the dating pool is going to have more of these avoidant types. I think so. That's in addition to it being a city where people gravitate to make it. And where this city attracts people that are a little bit more... I wouldn't say selfish, but self-focused. Well, you have to be if you want. Uh, there's a lot of people working in entertainment here. Mm-hmm. You have to focus on right. yourself. You're selling yourself constantly. So that mm-hmm. is going to be your priority if you yeah, want to make enough course. money to afford to you live know, here. I've thought about that a lot because, well, we all work in the entertainment industry mm-hmm. in some ways. Uh, Dr. Amy is also a fire eater. I don't know if we've mentioned that. I, I'm kind of retired now. Semi-retired. Well, we're yeah. semi-retired luchadors. You're semi-retired fire eater. Yeah. But we've, yeah. we've all had experiences <laughs> in entertainment. But... You know, I've met a a fair number of very successful, like, let's say, comedians and actors, and there's a bit of the sociopathy to them. Mm -hmm. And that's a common trait in, like, CEOs, for example. But when you're an actor, you're, you're like the CEO of you. Yeah, yeah. It's actually not sociopath behavior. Like, um, narcissistic personality disorder also exhibits a lack of empathy to others, even if it's not extreme. And we throw these terms around a lot. I mean, I hear it all the time from clients and friends. That guy's so narcissistic, NPD or borderline. Or, but the reality is, a good amount of people have narcissistic personality disorder more than some other thing, like more than a sociopath, which is antisocial. Okay, but there are a higher prevalence of people that are like doctors and lawyers that are leaning a little more to the narcissism because they have lack of empathy. And if you had high empathy for the type of environment that you're in as a doctor, as a lawyer, you would be destroyed oh, yeah. every day. Yeah. I, I think I'm a phantom ex for somebody. I think I've just figured that out mm-hmm. reading this book. I had a uh, relationship with someone that was very tumultuous. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom reminded me like a year ago that one of the last interactions I had with this person was I slapped a toothbrush out of his mouth. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> And now he's just pining for the woman who slapped a toothbrush out of his mouth. He, <laughs> Still talking about it? No, not the toothbrush framed. He, we do talk now, and his memories of our relationship are very sweet. Oh, well, revisionist. But I think I there's mean, a name all, for it. We we all do that. I mean, our memories are not ever reality. And I know that I'm that person for certain people in my life. And I'm thinking you're just projecting this idea of what you thought our relationship was all these years later. Um, and it's easy to do that when somebody is like successful and like visible and you know so it's easy to project it's like an easy projection I also know that there's relationships that I've had where somebody looks at me like I'm like a demon woman and like I'm sure I have those too (laughs) oh yeah I know I have a few of those so I'm like well which is it like you know and if I base my self-perception on like am I the demon woman or am I this like um, the most amazing the love that got lost forever I don't know it has nothing to do with you though right it has that's the thing is it has nothing to do with you and when we talk about like people making revisionist history well we all do that and that's how we just reflect on our memories like we never really know what reality is it's all based on our perception but we can really be better prepared when we have more information about our own styles of how we look at things our behaviors like even these things you're coming to like you know now that I'm really thinking about it maybe I am leaning a little more towards that avoidant it's not black and white maybe you're just 
you know, tipping the scale out of secure into avoidant a little bit and you're aware of this and going into dating situations, you can look at that and, and be more aware when you have distancing or protest behaviors. Pro yeah, so let's talk about protest Protest behavior. behaviors are the behaviors that come up for either the avoidant or the anxious type person that protest what they feel uncomfortable with. So we with, can- Without addressing it, right? Without addressing it. So with a very anxious person, this is the person that, you know, somebody's ghosting them or maybe, maybe you don't hear back from your partner for a few hours because their phone died or like they have a legitimate reason that they're not responding that has nothing to do with you and this is the person that will message you 20 times and then call you and then break up with you in that voicemail because they couldn't stand that you didn't respond back to them. So it's this protest behaviors of the discomfort that they're feeling from their attachment system. Yeah, I, I remember doing things like I didn't get a phone call back and so when they would call, I would just let it go to voicemail. And I yeah. would take my sweet time right. responding. Because yeah. then you have control again, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm spending mm -hmm. the entire time right. going, Thinking. okay, what well, page are we looking at here? It's 88. There's something really interesting in here. They describe heartache activating the same part of your brain that a broken bone would. Mm. So I believe it. So you're actually feeling pain. There's a line here. There's This is part of what heartache is all about. The longing for someone who is no longer available to us when our biological and emotional makeup is programmed to try to win them back. I had that high, high lit as well. You did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The re yeah, the regions of the brain associated with emotional regulation, such as the orbitofrontal cortex, were less activated than in women uh, with other attachment styles. Do you know how to, um, to strengthen my orbitofrontal cortex? How to strengthen how you are activated so I and can, how your, um, uh, your regulation? Yeah. So a lot of regulation can be worked on through body stuff. So did you guys do the Body Keeps the Score yet? No. I recommend that for future podcasts. Okay. I'd be happy to come back. Yes, please. Um, but that's a really good book on trauma and how trauma affects relationships and how the dysregulation from our trauma or our anxious systems can cause a lot of problems, both physically and emotionally. So a lot of dysregulation can be looked at physically. And, and trauma centers and p places that work on that with therapists typically will work on that from yoga to acupuncture to massage, breathing. Yes, therapy is really good, but a lot of body stuff is oh. what the new studies are really looking at, neurofeedback, EMDR. I'm doing EMDR, and it's That's great. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading a yeah. book about neurofeedback. So okay. I did neurofeedback. Yeah. I like to kind of try everything um, myself, too. So I did that like two years ago. And I was like, this is like some witch doctor stuff. I don't think this is helping. I was put in a room watching National Geographic and the screen would get a little funky and then it would reorient itself. And I had these uh, suction cups all over my head. And I felt generally better, but I didn't know if I felt better because I was watching uh, nature movies about cute monkeys in a dark, quiet room. So I just chalked it up to, well, who wouldn't feel nice after being quiet for an hour watching something really cute? Um, but overall, after reading a lot of studies about it, it really has so much evidence that it helps to re-regulate how activated your trauma response is. So wait, explain how that works then. Um, so what it does is your brain deactivates and the brain waves kind of go all over the place when you've had some type of trauma and you're mm -hmm. more likely to be activated when you've had this trauma or maybe you're a more anxious person. Mm -hmm. um, so what it does is it senses when something's uncomfortable for you to look at. So it makes the screen a little fuzzy uh -huh. and you're not thinking, get clear. That won't do it. It's so 
very unconscious. So it's unconsciously teaching your brain to calm down. And when your brain calms down in these brain waves, which you don't feel uncomfortable, when when the screen gets a little fuzzy, I'm not feeling distressed. Are you causing it to go fuzzy, or is that just it's what your you're brain? Watching? Yeah, Whoa. your brain's. But you don't. I mean, you don't feel anything. Yeah. It's not like I was like, I'm so upset. These this monkey movies fuzzy, and then I'm gonna calm myself down, and then it gets better. It's on an unconscious level. Mm-hmm. You're not wow. aware of it. But after doing that for, I think I did it for a couple months, um, and then I did other types of things too that probably added to my overall well-being. But the way that I handle distressing situations now is, I would say, eighty percent better mm-hmm. wow. than prior to doing neurofeedback. Great. So, I I think it's great. But the dysregulation looks very different with avoidant people than anxious people. An anxious person's going to be hyperventilating, panic attacks, can't eat, can't sleep, all these types of things. Avoidant people actually, when they did the infant studies, feel they'll tell you they're fine because they're shut down emotionally. But their dysregulation in their body, if you were to check their blood pressure, their heart rate, is actually worse than the anxious. Oh, wow. Which is really interesting. So that's even the people that seem shut down, depressed, and avoidant actually have the dysregulation inside. They're just unconsciously not connected to it. Yeah, I kind of feel worse for the avoidant people when I, I was reading this book. I do too, because yeah. anxious people, they, they think that they're to blame for this and that they have to change, you know, and they're and they're feeling the sadness. And the avoidant people are so... It's, it's almost like they're feeding off of it, yeah. you know? Like, it makes me want to just date them all and give them all hugs. No, that is not, <laughs> that's not the way I'm just kidding. I'm just no, kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, but the, but the protest behavior is, is your attachment system trying to protest what's happening inside. And it's these desperate attempts to reestablish connection, which, you know, is very obvious with the anxious people of calling, texting, mm-hmm. driving by, showing up at the doorstep, looking at now social media. You know, mm-hmm. I work with clients that will tell me, I'm looking at my ex-boyfriend's Instagram 20 times a day. And that's the social media equivalent of a drive-by. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, people would drive by houses and be like, their car wasn't there. Now we don't do that as much because we can look at their lives through social media. So let me ask, um, you know, if you're in a relationship and somebody does something bad, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm getting the feeling like the correct thing to do would be uh, to say, look, I need to, I need to express my needs. Absolutely. But what do you do if you're broken up with somebody and Mm -hmm. you still, and you're doing something like stalking their Facebook? Like, well, that's your problem. You know, I mean, you just need to stop you, Vera, but, um, obviously the answer is yes you absolutely need to stop this behavior but it's important to okay what am I getting out of this Mm -hmm. and what you're doing is you're engaging in like a compulsive behavior because there's no benefit I I like calling it pain shopping that's my favorite word but it's not like an academic term but I use it with my clients a lot it's like you will do a behavior until it hurts so much and then you're like okay now I'm miserable but you're looking for the pain what's the reasoning behind doing that it's just masochistic it's just you're looking for some type of connection or some type of evidence until the, you exhaust yourself. Right. You know yeah. how there's people say, you know, if you look in your partner's phone, you're always going to find something that you don't like. Yeah. Even if they're not actually doing something truly violating, it's the same thing. It's a pain shopping behavior. So it, and it's compulsive because why would we look at our ex's social medias? I mean, do we want to know what they're doing? No, you're you're looking for something bad. No, you're looking you're for something. Also looking for something that will make you feel better too. Well, it will make you feel glad you're not in the relationship, but in that process, it'll make you feel bad. So you're feeling bad and then like, well, glad I left so-and-so because look at them. Or maybe you don't see anything bad and then you just kind of miss them and then you feel worse and then you want to look more. Yeah. So it's just kind of never a good idea 
it's not a good idea yeah. to do that. I agree with that. Yeah. I usually tell people, and I think that it, in the breakup, because it's a broken book, emphasizes this, um, to kind of take like a 30-day after a breakup. Even if you think you're going to be friends later, just take a pause and take some space to re-acclimate to your life mm -hmm. and your new life without this person being your partner. And then make a decision later as to where in your boundary system they're going to be. Yeah. I think that's a good this idea. This is assuming that you have a boundary system too, which a lot of people don't have. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're finding yourself in a relationship that's very tumultuous, you mm -hmm. may never have learned any of this right. stuff. But that's why you take that break because no matter what, 30 days after the overwhelming, my world is going to come crashing down because I don't have this person feeling, 30 days later, there will be a change if you say, I'm just going to take 30 days of space. So I tell clients to do that, especially the ones that seem really compulsive and they're checking and they're, it's constantly this back and forth. They know they don't want to be in the relationship, but they kind of leave the door open. Um, so 30 days later, you will feel different because your oxytocin is going to be different. You're not having that sexual chemistry and reactivation and the attunement that's happening when you're close and you have the reinforcement, whether it's from sexual or just touch or closeness. Things change. Is that and, neurological though? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when you bring it down to all brain chemicals, like, gosh, that's sad too. It's like, if we're not constantly re-exposed to this person, having sexual interaction with them, touching them, making eye contact in just 30 days, there's a shift. I love that though. It's your body taking over. Mm -hmm. That's why you have to remind yourself when you're suffering from a breakup, this is, this feels like the end of the world. And it's temporary. It will not last forever. Yeah. And that's what the breakup book that you're mentioning, it does emphasize that too. It says it too at the end of the book. It, it emphasizes it's hard that to, things, yeah. it, you will recover. No matter yeah. what, it's temporary. Yeah. And, you know, if we th all think about, you know, we're all in a similar age range. If we all think about all the relationships that we've had over time and how especially the world felt like it was crashing down over so many people that you look back now and you think, oh my gosh, was I really that messed up over that person? I, I um, when I got back together with that boyfriend Marlon who I had before my husband um, I remember very distinctly we went to have lunch at El Coyote restaurant mm -hmm. and uh, we were talking and I told him point blank that if he if we were to break up I was going to become a nun Oh, that's cool. Are you really going to become a nun? <laughs> that's what I told him, and that's what I believed. Well, I mean, what? I think we've all kind of said those types of things. Like, if we break, this is the last no. one. I'm never dating again. I really or... felt that way. I honestly felt that way. And his, you know what he said to me? He said, you already dress like one. Hearts. <laughs> I, well, I, I think that's a compliment. I think nuns are pretty stylish. They are, actually. but I mean, this is before I became, you know, got into yeah. burlesque and oh, stuff. Okay. So. <laughs> you could be a sexy nun. That's cool. Is there any other kind? Really? I know, right? I mean, that's my thing. So um, that's right. You had like seventeen nun costumes that you had to get I had rid of. So right? many. Well, no, I had um, I had twenty to thirty Catholic schoolgirl costumes. And, but but I had several. In the classroom. Right. Yeah. Forever. When I used to do like all these dance jobs and things like that, I had to mm -hmm. outfit all these people. And now when I have clothing purges, it's a lot of like the leftover costuming. Not so much now. I just keep a few things in case there's a costume party. Just but 10 to 12 nun costumes. I have one nun costume. <laughs> just one. But I probably have about 80 rosaries. <laughs> so, <laughs> I collect them. If anyone wants to send me a present. Um, but yeah. So, it, you know, we think back on these relationships and it's neat to see what happens even when our hearts are broken after not just 30 days, but a year. 
like you think a year later, you know, where where are you going to be at? But everything is really temporary. Our minds and our brains are designed by whoever, whatever, nothing, whatever your belief system the guy, is. The guy who had me aim that popsicle at that man's face. There's a desperation for equilibrium in us as human beings. Mm. And when our brains and our bodies swing to one side, our brains and bodies want to go to the other side and then equal out. Aww. So it's now natural that is just human nature so just trust that process and know that when you feel the dysregulation when you feel so upset or so heartbroken this is a natural occurrence it's temporary and in time you're just your body will make it better it just will happen and if that's a little harder for you than other people if your dysregulation is easier triggered if you have trauma if there's more dangerous situation happening that's when you reach out for help whether it's a therapist or group therapy or reaching out to these other types of dysregulation strategies like emdr and neurofeedback and work through maybe something that's bigger or something that your relationship has triggered with a past trauma because a lot of times when it's a more than what we read in this book is the anxious attachment, it may be related to reactivating a trauma from your past. I'm so glad that therapy is more widely accepted now and more mm -hmm. accessible as well. Mm -hmm. That just in the last five, 10 years, it's gone from something that if you admit that you're going to see a therapist, which may be weird for you, I'm mm -hmm. wondering what your perspective is on, it was such a stigma to, to admit that you needed help, professional help. Wrong. Like go see a professional. Right. And now I think if you have access, you should do it because- Well, we're in LA. Yeah. It's like cool to have a therapist now. I think- I I think in Not LA, men, though. I, I think I, I think really a lot of guys. I mean, I have a lot of male clients that yeah, um, I think in entertainment, a lot of people see a therapist. I started watching. Um, I'm always like late to every party because I don't watch TV. I started watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, so it's new to me, even though I'm watching episodes from like 2001. <laughs> um, but they keep referring to like go see your analyst. Yeah. You should see an analyst, which is very like Woody Allen. Woody right. Allen would say a lot of things like that. So I think in LA, like R.I.P. Woody yeah. Allen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Annie Hall, though. It's a, I like <laughs> Diane Keaton in that movie. But, I mean, the chance to talk about yourself, actually. Who in Los Angeles doesn't want to do that? I mean, to talk to somebody and actually not have them interrupt you, that's amazing. That, yes. You do have to pay for it most of the time. Worth but, every cent. Yeah. It's a lot more accessible. I try to post about that. That's why I have social media as a therapist because I don't really get clients from social media. It's just like, hey, a reminder, like, here's all the ways that you can afford therapy. It's not going to be full price for everyone. You have ways that you can go through your insurance a lot of people aren't aware of. There's sliding scale clinics. There's um, people that are working on their hours. There's definitely ways to make it accessible in some way to everybody. Yeah. Um, I'm working with a nonprofit right now that I like to talk about that subsidizes um, mental health services for sex workers because a lot of times they may or may not have insurance. And with a lot of suicides in that industry, in the adult industry a year or two ago, this nonprofit started. So there's definitely avenues for everybody to access less expensive or more affordable mental health care. What is the name of the That's product? called pineapple support. Okay. Because pineapple is actually the most common safe word in a lot of BDSM and sexual oh, activities. A lot okay. of people don't know that. Um, don't pick a word like stop because that could play into <laughs> like a, a, a fantasy. Uh, so usually people don't have pineapple, you know, sexual projections and fantasies. Right. So yeah, so that that's a really great nonprofit. But it is accessible to most people. You just have to know where to look. And so I always just tell people you can message me on social media and I would be happy to send you referrals or to places that would be appropriate. Good cool. to know. Yeah. All right. So we're going to wrap up. Thank you to oh. Dr. Amy for yes. joining us and for recommending this book, which what do we how do we rate this book, Barbara? Um, I would say uh, zero impacts to the face. 
It's <laughs> we like it that much. Zero out of two impacts to the face. Success! Woohoo! Yippee!